Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. The system for funding public education often pits rich school districts against poorer ones. I've often wondered if people from some of these wealthier communities, if they would put up with this, if they would sit quietly, had this been their children's school. We'll explore school funding around New England, from questions about how states value public education to what it means when a private donor wants to support schools. It only contributes um, sort of greater volatility to public systems. And we'll look at food insecurity among Vermont's farm workers. People would say, well, sure, I have the money, but let me tell you about all of the challenges that I experience going to the store and finding the food that's meaningful to me or finding the time in between the shifts that I'm working on a dairy farm to access some of these foods. And 50 years after the Harvard protests of 1969, a conversation about what it meant to be a student activist then and what it means now. From the New England News Collaborative, it's Next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. We've been following the struggles and successes of farmers in our region. A new focus on organic, locally grown food has led to a boom in farm stand and foodie culture. But the hard economic realities of milk production in our region has meant the closures of hundreds of farms over the last decade. That's hit Vermont especially hard. But there's another problem that's not as easy to see from the outside. The people who do the hard work on those farms often aren't able to get food easily. That food insecurity is a problem with many causes, but immigration policy is right at the center. A new book by University of Vermont professor Teresa Mayers dives into this issue. It's called Life on the Other Border, Farm Workers and Food Justice in Vermont. And she's with us now. Teresa, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. So we've got a pretty good idea in our heads of what Vermont's farming industry is like, but maybe you can tell us a bit more. What does the industry mean for the state's economy, first of all? Yeah, absolutely. So the dairy industry is really important here. Of all of the states in the nation, Vermont is the state that has the most dependency upon one agricultural commodity, and that that commodity is milk. So right now, um, Vermont's dairies accounts for about 6,000 to 7,000 jobs in the state, provides about $360 million in wages and salaries, and about 80% of the state's farmland is dedicated to dairy production, whether it's for pastures or for growing feed crops or for the dairies themselves. And so um, dairy is very important for the state of Vermont, both culturally, but also economically, politically, and socially. It's a, it's a huge part of the state. It's a huge part of the identity as well as the economy. What's the workforce for the industry like right now? Yeah, so absolutely. So um, part of it is dependent upon the size of the dairy. Um, one of the things that I look specifically at is the experiences of Latino migrant farm workers in the state, um, which tend to be working on some of the larger dairies, but not exclusively. And so the labor challenges have been really significant in dairy for a very long time. But beginning in about the late 1990s, what we started seeing in the state was the growing importance of Latino farm workers for uh, maintaining the dairy industry, particularly the large production that we currently see now. I'm wondering if you have an, an idea how many of these workers are documented, how many are undocumented currently? 
Yeah, so currently there's an estimate of about 1,000 to 1,200 Latino farm workers in the state, according to uh, University of Vermont Extension. And it's estimated that probably 90% of those are here without documents. Um, One of the key things is that because the dairy industry is year-round work, workers in dairy cannot qualify for some of the other agricultural visa programs like the H-2A visa program. And so um, within the Latino immigrant farm worker community, the majority of those are undocumented. When we talk about workers who come to work in the dairy industry here, because it's a year-round industry, does it mean that people come from outside the country, work here, and then stay here for years on end? Oftentimes, yeah. And one of the big changes that's happened, especially since uh, September 11th, and especially since we've seen a really um, sort of growing militarization and level of violence along the U.S.-Mexico border, um, many people sort of talk about how 9-11 resulted in people being stuck in the United States, where we might have seen more circular migration previously, because that process of crossing into the United States has gotten so risky and so dangerous and so expensive. A lot of times that has resulted in people staying here often for longer than they originally planned. And so, yeah, a number of the individuals that I've been working with have been working not only in Vermont, but have often moved um, back and forth between uh, New York and other parts of the United States and have been here often for years on end. What is life like for these folks who live uh, for sometimes years, sometimes for months on end on a dairy farm in Vermont? Maybe you can paint us a picture if you would. Yeah, I I don't think it's really easy to generalize that because I think it depends a lot on the particular farm that people are working on, um, their level of social connection, where they're living in the state, their experiences of whether they're here with their family or whether they're here alone. So I don't think there's really a way to generalize it, but I often think about the story of a friend of mine named Juana, I'm using a pseudonym there, who came to Vermont to join her husband and who um, eventually did find work on um, a dairy farm, although um, wasn't necessarily a full-time worker. And she had two children that were born in the United States, two children that were born in Mexico and remained in Mexico. And her life was definitely difficult. She came from the state of Chiapas. Her family, they are coffee growers. And one of the things that she described to me is that her life back home was was a hard one. It was one of poverty. It was one of instability. Um, but she often compared it to her life in Vermont. And she would say, well, I have more money here, but I don't have the freedom here. One of the things that farm workers experience often is a level of fear and anxiety about leaving the home or leaving the farm. And she certainly had that fear. Um, her older son, who did come to work here in Vermont shortly after he, he moved here to work in the dairy industry, was detained while he was out shopping for party supplies. And so uh, that added to some of the um, difficulties that Juana was experiencing. Eventually, she did return to Chiapas because of some family tragedy and some of family loss. But she, I think the thing that I always remember about her story and about her experiences is she compared the, the sort of poverty and freedom in Mexico, but relative wealth and lack of freedom here in the United States. And that lack of freedom comes in large part because almost the entirety of Vermont is within this, this 100-mile zone away from borders of the United States, which means that Customs and Border Protection is able to operate much more freely is that part of of what is is leading to Juana and others their their fear of going outside, going out into public? Absolutely, yeah, that's part of it. The other part is that Vermont is one of the least ethnically diverse states in the country. Um, sometimes we're number one, sometimes we're number two. But because it is a it is a state where 
people of color are often very visible, um, especially in rural areas. That adds to some of the anxieties and fears of being out in public. Um, so that coupled with the fact that we are a border state and um, 100 miles, which is a big chunk of the state, and especially a big chunk of where we see dairy farms is within that 100-mile border. Um, that adds to a, a series and sort of a complications of events that um, leave people often very fearful of leaving the home. Yeah, and there's some real impacts for these people. Uh, our reporter at VPR, John Dillon, has been doing a lot of coverage around this issue. He spoke with a farm worker named Olga, and here's a clip of her. She's speaking through an interpreter here. So she said that uh, there were plenty of occasions she needed to call an ambulance for an emergency. She heard that even the police is turning people to immigration, and that could, you know, if she calls for an emergency, maybe police is going to be involved. So she's been really afraid, and at her household, everybody's been afraid to reach out to an ambulance or to the hospital or the police. Uh, uh, Teresa, I'm wondering if if you can line up what uh, Olga has said there with some of your experiences, some of the the people that you've you've talked to. Is that a lot of what you're hearing? Absolutely, yeah, and I um, I know her story pretty well. <laughs> so, yeah, whether it's access to health care, whether it's access to emergency medical services, whether it's going to church, whether it's getting food, all of the ways that we sort of go out of our homes on a daily basis, whether, you know, it's for basic needs or for, you know, more pleasurable activities, um, all of those choices and those needs are definitely different for Vermont's farm worker community. So, of course, there's the fear of going out. You may be worried about uh, police or border protection. But w- what you're writing about in your book largely is is this worry about, about food security. So before we get into some details, I'm wondering why you, you picked this topic to, to focus on with all the other struggles that, <laughs> that people have in their lives. Why is food security so central to this story? I'm a food anthropologist, so I study food and have been doing so within um, immigrant communities um, from the time I was a graduate student in Seattle. And I think food for me just offers one particularly important way to look at people's connections with their culture, with the environment, with their families, with their religion. Um, You can look at economic issues or political issues or social issues through food. And one of the things that I've long been sort of troubled by is the fact that workers in our food system, whether it's farm workers or whether it's restaurant workers or school cafeteria workers, we often see high rates of food insecurity within food workers in the country, and that includes farmers. There's a higher than average uh, percentage of farmers also that are experiencing food shortages. And so to me, that really indicates that there's something sort of fundamentally wrong in our food system, where those individuals who are ensuring that, you know, those of us who are food secure are food secure. When they're experiencing the food insecurity in their own homes, that that to me indicates a big contradiction. And do you have some, some hard numbers or at least guesses as to how many of the farm workers who are in that state working uh, documented or undocumented actually are considered food insecure? Yeah, so part of the research that goes into this book is based both on um, my administering um, something called the U.S. Household Food Security Survey Module, which is a USDA tool that is used to understand household food security in the United States, as well as um, more in-depth qualitative interviews. I'm an anthropologist, and I like to talk to people um, for a long time, (laughs) especially about some of these topics. 
And so the food security surveys that I conducted with 100 farmworkers in the state indicated that about 18% of farmworker households are food insecure, and that compares with about 10% for the Vermont average. I think the problem, though, is that those numbers fall short in really capturing the complexity of food access and capturing some of the more lived realities of food security. And so while that number is even, you know, even though it's elevated compared to the overall Vermont average, I think it's a huge underestimate. And part of it is because that instrument is really indicating that based on this assumption that if you have access to money, you have access to food. And as I was doing these surveys and I would get through the questions, it's a fairly quick instrument to use, people would say, well, sure, I have the money, but let me tell you about all of the challenges that I get or that I experience going to the store and finding the food that's meaningful to me or finding the time in between the shifts that I'm working on a dairy farm to access some of these foods. And so while you know the hard data shows 18%, if we look at some of the qualitative data that I would have um, from this project, I would estimate that, you know, nearly everyone is facing some kind of food access barrier. And so, um, again, I think that points to some of the realities that individuals are experiencing here in Vermont and also some of the sort of really complicated matters that we can think about when we think about food security. What about food consumers, people who love Vermont cheese, people who (laughs) who want to spend time on a Vermont farm and and take part in this longstanding agriculture tradition. I mean, what do you think they need to take away from the fact that the farm workers who are getting you that milk or cheese likely don't have anywhere close to the access to fresh food that you do? Yeah, so I'm a Vermont cheese lover myself. Um, (laughs) I think one of the things, whether it's sort of our appreciation of dairy products or whether it's appreciation of of going to restaurants and enjoying that. I think in general, the average U.S. consumer, you know, as we are showing concern about, you know, whether food is organic or whether it is local, I think we also need to be more concerned with the working conditions that it's produced um, with and through. And so I think, um, you know, starting to ask questions and starting to really looking look into the sources of our food, not just um, not just the whether it's organic or not, whether it's just local, but really thinking about um, does this particular farm or restaurant or tortilla factory or whatever it happens to be, are they treating their workers well? I think that's a really important set of questions that consumers can start and continue to ask. Teresa Mayers is author of a new book called Life on the Other Border, Farm Workers and Food Justice in Vermont. She's also an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Vermont. Teresa, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Like the farm workers we just profiled, Maria Merida can't move freely. In fact, it's been a year since she's gone to the grocery store or even on a walk. Because during that time, she's been staying in a Boston-area church, living in so-called sanctuary, in hopes of avoiding U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. Reporter Shannon Dooling met Merida shortly after she arrived at the church and recently spoke with her again, and she brings us this update. Maria Merida says she's been keeping busy in the year since we met. She has English classes six days a week and smiles when she says she can now read some things in English. Every now and then, she'll venture into the vegetable garden in the churchyard, but that's rare. She never goes farther. This is a problem that I'm examining myself. There's something in my heart that makes me sad. I don't feel like going outside. I feel like... If I go outside, I'm going to want to go home, so I'd rather just stay in. 
me, me da tristeza salir afuera. Mejor me mantengo aquí adentro. Merida is from Guatemala and has a final order of removal after entering the U.S. illegally in 1994. Her husband was deported back to Guatemala in 2016 and her eldest son last year. Before these recent years of upheaval, she and her family lived in Lynn for more than a decade. Her husband worked as a gardener and their children went to school. Three of her sons, now 23, 19, and 17, are U.S.-born citizens. They're living on their own. The two youngest boys have dropped out of high school since Merida has been living at the church, which she says breaks her heart. She tries keeping in touch with text messages, but the boys aren't able to visit often. She last saw them around Christmas. That's what I'd love the most, to be with my sons. But I can't go there because at any moment ice can come to the house and take me. So I feel safer here, although I'm sad. I'm not happy because my heart is broken for my sons, for my family. So here I have the security that I'm protected. Still, she worries. Her eldest son was the primary source of income for the younger boys after their father was deported. And now the boys are largely on their own. My son, when he was here, he was like a father for them. He told them to go to school, and they'd go to school. Now what happened destroyed everything, because now there's no father, no big brother, there's no mother. The boys are alone in the house. Merida says she fears for her life if she's deported back to Guatemala, where she was in an abusive relationship before marrying her husband. Because of these fears, we've agreed not to identify the location of the church where she's living. Her attorney is waiting to hear back from the Board of Immigration Appeals on whether Merida's case will be reopened and whether she'll be able to continue with an asylum claim. In the meantime, Merida is coming up on celebrating her second birthday living in the church. She shuffles through a large pile of cards written to her last year from members of the congregation. She says this year she hopes to celebrate outside of the church. I'll be 54 years old, she says, and I would like to be free, outside, breathing fresh air. But I know that soon my blessings will come. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Shannon Dooling in Boston. Coming up, exploring activism across generations, but first, school funding around New England. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwabstone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. How to pay for public schools is an issue that's at the heart of every town school board meeting and state legislative session. Many parents and cities have taken to the courts to get what they consider to be adequate funding for school districts. 
In a state like Connecticut, where there's a sharp divide between rich and poor districts, a superior court judge ruled that the state formula for school funding was irrational and unconstitutional. But then that ruling was overturned by the state Supreme Court. The biggest problem these suits is trying to address is how to balance funding in a system where property taxes are so vital to a district's survival. In wealthy suburbs, finding that money is easy. Not so in many cities and rural towns. But in most New England states, there's at least a mechanism to distribute funding. Statewide income and sales taxes can help to balance the scales. But what about famously tax-averse New Hampshire? Lawsuits have challenged school funding there, too. And it's the subject of a new series from NHPR, Adequate. How a State Decides the Value of Public Education. Education reporter Sarah Gibson joins us now. Welcome to Next. Thank you. The series focuses on education funding around New Hampshire. And to really understand this, I guess we've got to go back to the 1990s in a, in a lawsuit where school districts in New Hampshire sued the state. Can you tell us about these cases? Sure. So they're called the Claremont cases, and they lasted for most of the 90s. They're kind of these seminal state Supreme Court cases here in New Hampshire. And basically, a group of lawyers got together to represent five property poor towns. These are mostly former mill towns that were really struggling to pay for education just with local property taxes. They went to the courts and said, students have a right to an education throughout New Hampshire, and that the just relying on property taxpayers to pay for that is is unfair. So this lasted for a number of years from 91 until 97. When we talk about property taxpayers, it's really important to note that in New Hampshire, property taxes are really what pays for education because you don't have a state income tax. That's a really important thing to know. Exactly. Uh, nor, nor a sales tax. So property taxes are really what we rely on to fund services, many of our services here in New Hampshire. So so these schools that the lawyers were representing, they were in really bad shape. Andrew Valinsky was, was leading the team of lawyers in, in the 90s, and he, he told me about his memories of visiting some of these schools. Allenstown used a converted bathroom for one-on-one sessions for special ed children. So the most stigmatized small child in the school literally went to class in the bathroom. Uh, That still haunts me. And other things that haunt him are asbestos falling from all the ceilings, textbooks that were decades old. So for over the course uh, of six years, there were tons of cases. It kept on going back to the courts. And finally, the Supreme Court in New Hampshire issued these big decisions that really changed how education happens here in New Hampshire, or we're supposed to. The Supreme Court said it was the state's obligation to fund a, quote, constitutionally adequate education and that the state had to fund it. So basically, taxes to fund this education needed to be fair and uniform across the state. So no more asking Allenstown to, you know, have really high property tax rates in order to pay for its schools. Things were supposed to be uniform, um, regardless of where you were in the state, regardless of the wealth of, of your community. And where is this tax money going to come from? You, you've got this uh, tax structure that's being imposed, but where exactly is the is the money to pay for it going to come from? Well, the the court, uh, you know, many people said the Supreme Court overstepped, but the court did not legislate where the money comes from. They basically punted it back to the legislature and said, you lawmakers need to figure this out. You figure out how to basically fund education in a different way. And this took a couple of of years to kind of hammer out. But basically, lawmakers went to the drawing board and they did all these complicated calculations to figure out, okay, so what is an adequate education? And how are we going to fund it? And there are some 
some business taxes, a car rental tax. There's、um, a, a number of little taxes that go to fund education now. But the reality is, about seventy percent of education in New Hampshire is still being paid for by local property taxpayers. Well, and before we get more into how the money flows, which does sound very complicated, and, and maybe. It's a problem that's not entirely solved. There is still this question of adequate education. What exactly is meant by that? <laughs> well, that's a debate you'll hear every year in the state house, John. We have over four hundred people in the state house lawmakers who probably have four hundred different ideas about what an adequate education is. Lawmakers tried to hammer that out, and they basically came up with some things about curriculum as well as the cost of teachers and benefits, and they came up with a number. They said was based on what an average performing school in New Hampshire、um, was doing in the late nineties, which they said was thirty four hundred dollars per student. They said that should fund an adequate education in New Hampshire. They added a little bit more if you were learning English or you were a free and reduced lunch child or if you had special ed needs. It's increased a little bit over the years. So now New Hampshire says that it owes the school districts thirty seven hundred dollars per student, and that that should fund an adequate education. You, you you take a look at some school districts that are being forced to adapt due to troubles with funding. Talk to us about Berlin. Berlin is in the north of this state. It's a former mill town. Tons of paper and pulp mills used to be there, but those have closed. So the town has really struggled、uh, with depopulation, very few jobs, high rates of poverty. But it's always been really proud of its schools, and it's spent a lot of its city budget on its schools. Berlin was one of the plaintiffs that sued the state in the 1990s, and they say they're kind of back to where they were then. Basically, property taxpayers have really high property tax rates compared to the rest of the state to fund education, and still, it's just not enough. I mean, they're looking at laying off staff; they're not hiring staff when someone retires; they're even closing schools. And this is really heartbreaking for people there. I spoke to the chairwoman of the school board. Her name is Nicole Plud. I've often wondered if people from some of these wealthier communities, if they would put up with this, if they would sit quietly, had this been their children's school. We really need to recognize that kids move all over. How we educate them here matters. How we educate our kids, no matter where they are in the state, matters. So now, in your series, you're reporting on a new lawsuit. It's by the Conval School District. Can you tell us what's happening there? Sure. So Conval is in the southwestern part of the state. It's a pretty rural area of of the state, and Conval is interesting. It's not like these other towns that that brought the original lawsuits in the '90s. It's considered pretty middle class. It certainly has pockets of poverty, but people were kind of surprised when last month they brought the state to court and said, "You're not paying enough for education here." And their lawsuit really invokes Claremont. It basically says that this thirty-seven hundred dollars you're spending—it's not nearly enough for an adequate education. And they actually say you need to triple that amount in order to fund an adequate education. So they're asking for millions and millions more dollars annually from the state.、Mm. One of the questions that always comes up when the politics of education funding、uh, rise at a, at a state house is how are we going to prepare students? In all districts in the state, for 
21st century jobs, to make sure that we're economically competitive. Is this something that, that lawmakers and school district officials are talking about as they battle over how to fund education? Oh, absolutely. You know, we have a major workforce shortage here in New Hampshire. We boast about low unemployment rates, but the reality is we don't have enough people to fill jobs. And so it's really frustrating if you're in a school that is underfunded to hear everyone talk about how we need more people who are good on tech. We need more nurses. Uh, we need more teachers. And to say, well, I don't have the textbooks. I don't have the computers. I don't have the staffing. I don't have the paraeducators. I don't have the things I need in order to prepare kids to graduate from New Hampshire high schools, stay in the state, and build a career here. So it's a huge part of the conversation, and I think it's why this issue about New Hampshire's responsibility to students is is maybe getting a little bit more traction right now. Sarah Gibson is NHPR's education reporter and reporter behind the series Adequate, How a State Decides the Value of Public Education. You can find links to the series at nextnewengland.org. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. You're welcome. We mentioned Connecticut's school funding woes earlier. And as it stands right now, education spending is the largest expense for towns, cities, and the state. But even with that big investment, Connecticut still has the largest achievement gap in the nation. Now, hedge fund billionaire Ray Dalio's foundation has announced it's going to give $100 million to help fix the schools, and the state has pledged to raise $200 million more over the next few years, specifically to help students at risk of dropping out of high school. But as Connecticut Public Radio's David DeRoche reports, philanthropic giving to public education doesn't always have such a rosy history. The hype is always big. So, Mr. Zuckerberg... What role are you playing in all of this? (laughs) I've committed to a $100 million challenge grant. $100 million. But the results don't always live up to the hype. It made national headlines when Mark Zuckerberg gifted $100 million to Newark schools. Now, five years later, the experiment has largely failed. And Newark's still trying to... Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg wanted to save Newark, New Jersey schools... But like many similar philanthropic projects, things didn't pan out as expected. Now, the hype's in Connecticut. Here's Governor Ned Lamont at the recent announcement at East Hartford High School. The Dalio Foundation has stepped up in a significant, significant way. You know, it's a partnership we have together. Uh, The Dalio Foundation is going to contribute $100 million to make sure your education is the best that it can be. My initial reaction was, oh, no, not again. (laughs) Lauren Anderson is an education professor at Connecticut College. When there are these gifts that sort of create new things that are not sustainable over the long term, and then wealthy philanthropists can ultimately decide not to continue funding those things, (laughs) it only contributes Um, sort of greater volatility to public systems. While she's not optimistic that this new influx of private cash will do any good, she says it could work if there was a long-term commitment. So I would say it's, it's investments in things that can be sustainable as opposed to things that would be ephemeral and eventually passed off in terms of cost to local districts. The details of the plan have yet to be worked out. Here's what we know so far. The aim is to reach out to teenage students who are disengaged from learning and at risk of dropping out of school. The governor says he wants teachers to lead the process. 
Other than that, a lot of questions remain, and there aren't many examples of something like this working out. Last year, the RAND Corporation released a 500-plus page report about a billion-dollar program that was partially funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It aimed to improve teaching in three public school districts in Florida, Tennessee, and Pennsylvania, but it didn't have the expected outcomes. There was hype around that program, too, when it came out. We will become a model district of how things should be done across the United States. It would have taken us 15 years to get where we're going to get in five. I think we're going to get 80. But neither of those things came true. Laura Hamilton's with the RAND Corporation and co-authored the report. She says there are a few common mistakes these philanthropic projects often make, like frequent leadership turnover, inconsistent messaging, poor outcome measures, and a lack of teacher involvement. One of the things that teachers say frustrates them the most about their jobs is that it seems like there is always some new reform that's that's being you know imposed on them from above that they don't really have a lot of say in whether or how that's enacted. And then as soon as they kind of figure it out and get used to it, some other new reform comes along. UConn education professor Morgan Donaldson says there's a lot of research out there on what works for disengaged teenagers, and Connecticut should look at that. She says she's excited about the announcement by Dalio Philanthropies. The proposal focuses on under-resourced communities, and it also tries to make that connection and that link between uh, students and schools and also the workforce. She says she understands the worry that the money could come and go, and then districts would be left to figure out what to do. I think that's a very valid concern. And, um, you know, given the financial situation of the state, I think it's it behooves us to think outside the box a bit. She says foundations often underestimate the complexity of working with school districts and the politics involved. Philanthropists also sometimes are blinded by their vision and don't pay attention to the warning signs along the way. Bottom line is teachers should drive the conversation, and parents in the broader community should also be involved. Those interviewed agreed that in a few years, to see if the investment has paid off, the state should look at a variety of measures and not just graduation rates. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm David DeRoche in Hartford. A big cost for many school districts is transportation, especially in very rural districts. That's especially hard right now in muddy season when the snow is melted and the rain begins. Reporter Carrie Young from WBUR took a ride on one of the long routes in Coleraine, Massachusetts. It's in the northwestern part of the state. This is mud and ruts and a mess. It's just after the school day here at the Coleraine Central School, and bus driver Joanne Dady is about halfway through her route. Standing between her and the next drop-off is a big patch of what she calls greasy mud, the kind her bus can easily get stuck in. You can see the ruts over here. We've got a steep drop-off with leaves, dirt, trees. With a firm grip on the wheel, Dady slowly makes her way through all while making sure the 20 kids on board sit safely in their seats. Guys, out of the aisle! Dady also has to contend with what feels like a minefield of potholes on this narrow dirt road. And this is why we can only go about 15 to 20 miles an hour, because of the bumps. The whole bus would feel like I was trying to shake it apart if we went any faster. During the winter months, it's snow and ice that make this route treacherous. 
Sixth grader Caden Piantanita knows firsthand getting the bus through that can be a team effort. Two times I've had to bring a bucket of salt down so we could like salt under the wheels to try to get it running. Yes, even the kids on board chip in from time to time to make the commute successful. And while this is all part of a day's work for Dady, it can still be stressful because if she gets stuck on this long route, help could be a ways away. And when conditions are at their worst, she needs a set of backup vans to pick up and take the kids the rest of the way. Transportation here is a whole different animal. Michael Bonaconti is the superintendent of the Mohawk Trail Regional School District. He says muddy roads are one of many issues that school leaders face when trying to get their students to and from class in this rugged terrain. And it can get expensive. For example, a bridge along one route is about to be shut down because it's unsafe. School facilities coordinator Robin Pease has to find a fast way around, and soon. We've talked to parents, and we're trying to give them alternative bus stops to to go to so we don't have to add another bus. The state and district officials don't want kids sitting on buses for too long each day. So if Pease's new route isn't short enough, she'll have to add another one. And that will cost the district about $45,000 a year. All of those extra costs add up to a hefty bill. For Superintendent Bonaconti's district, it's about $1,000 per student per year. That's more than double what the average urban district spends. And it is a major issue in our annual budgeting process. Bonaconti adds that pinch has gotten tighter over the last 15 years. This district, like many other rural school systems, have declining enrollment. And fewer students translates to less funding overall from the state. It impacts how many teachers we can hire, how many textbooks we can buy. He says he's running out of places to cut. Most of his elementary schools already have just one class per grade. But if they keep getting squeezed, they might have to start combining some grades. And Bonaconti says doing that would shortchange the teachers and the students. There's a direct impact on our educational programming. And that's one of the reasons why he and a group of other rural regional school districts are asking lawmakers this session for more state funding, even changes to the state funding formula. The Baker administration says they're considering the proposals. State lawmakers are already weighing proposals to make big changes in school funding across the board. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Carrie Young. Coming up, how student activism on college campuses has changed over the years. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust. Fifty years ago, in April of 1969, a group of Harvard students launched a protest against the university's role in the Vietnam War. Now, half a century later, those protesters are going back to campus and speaking with students about how activism has changed since then. Nate Goldschlag is a former Harvard University student who participated in those 1969 protests. And Sophia Shapiro is a current Harvard student who's currently active in the divest Harvard movement. They're at WHRB Studio in Cambridge. Nate, Sophia, welcome to Next. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Nate, why don't you start by tell our listeners... What happened in April of 1969 on the campus of Harvard? On April 9th, um, a group of about 60 or 70 students uh, occupied University Hall initially. 
and hundreds more joined in. At some point, I think there were three or 400 inside the building. The issues were not just the war in Vietnam. That was a huge issue of getting ROTC off campus because ROTC provided officers for the war. But the other issue was Harvard's expansion into Cambridge. It was gobbling up properties, raising rents, and uh, kicking people out to, to make them Harvard buildings. The other issue that got added in later was a request for a, a black studies department, which did not exist at the time. So we occupied the building at 5 in the morning. The next morning, Harvard called in police, state police, police from all different towns around Cambridge. And they came into University Hall and they were cracking heads with billy clubs. They also were beating people in the yard who were just standing around watching. And about a couple of hundred of us were arrested. And this this set off a strike that basically closed down classes for the rest of the year. Mm. Tell us about your role, and, and maybe you can describe you as a Harvard student in 1969. What what were you doing? What were you protesting personally? Well, I was in SDS, uh, Students for a Democratic Society, and um, we had been building this campaign all year, basically. We had had petitions, talked to people. We did a lot of canvassing in dorms, and it all built up to April of, of, of 69. I happened to get my picture taken with three other students escorting Dean Archie Epps out of University Hall. And that picture, which was on the front page of the New York Times, Life Magazine, everywhere, got me kicked out of Harvard for two years. Hmm. Only Think- two years. <laughs> <laughs> I never went back. Were people, do you think, paying attention to the protest on Harvard's campus, Nate, because it was Harvard? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, for that, for you know, if it hadn't been for Harvard, it probably wouldn't have been on the front page of the New York Times. There had been Columbia in 1968 and some, some other protests in 69, San Francisco State, and then Harvard. And then the next year, uh, campuses exploded with Kent State and Jackson State, and there were many student strikes. So I think, I think the, Harvard, the Harvard occupation and, and, and the bust were part of a, um, an influential part of the student movement at the time. Sophia, maybe you can give me your, your reaction to, to some of what Nate's talking about and some of the history that you know about what happened 50 years ago. Yeah, well, my first reaction is trying to imagine that taking place now and what kind of coalition of student activists it would require and what kind of organizing capacity it would require. And I'm just shocked at how successful it was, even even in this sort of like violent repercussion in terms of the strategic impact of it. I, I can't imagine that we have the capacity for that, even though we have so many pressing organizing issues on campus right now. And that would be sort of like a dream to organize such a such a powerful occupation and ideally not be met with the police. That is the most sort of violent aspect of that and shocking. I, I want to ask yeah. you more about the, the pressing uh, issues that, that you're working on on campus now. But maybe you can talk a bit more about the organizing aspect, because I think many people would say, well, look, you have social media, you have cell phones, you have the ability to gather a whole bunch of people in one place at one time. And, and you think it would be it would be hard to pull off what Nate and his colleagues did. Yeah, I think so. I think 
In terms of organizing on a day-to-day, the students who are involved in various things are are just stretched very thin, and it, it just involves so much time and so much energy. It's not just, you know, reposting on social media. It's a very, like, logistical grassroots effort that requires so much of the students' time that we just don't have. I mean, we do have, we make time. We, you know, we prioritize this over school in a lot of the cases because this is our future. Nate, I want to pick up and and maybe you can talk about how you did organize these protests because I can imagine that the students on the Harvard campus in 1969, they had a lot going on on their plates as well beyond just uh, protesting against the war and other things that were, were very important to you. How did you get these large groups together? Well, it was very different times. All the, all the men faced the draft at that time when they got out of school. So there was a real chance of, of people getting sent to Vietnam. Uh, the government got smart after the Vietnam War and instituted a volunteer army. But at that time, everybody was vulnerable to be drafted and sent to Vietnam. So that certainly had a big impact on, on organizing. And, you know, there have been very successful protests at Harvard – um, four years ago, there was a divest Harvard movement that blockaded a building, got a lot of people involved. Oh, yeah. um, that was us. That was you. <laughs> yeah. And, and um, so I think there's been a continuum of protests at Harvard, not all necessarily as dramatic as, as the occupation of University Hall. But Harvard learned a lot from that. They learned that you shouldn't bring in cops and beat students up because it, it leads to more and more students supporting those who are protesting. So I think I think the government learned no draft. Harvard learned no cops, and uh, things are different now. Sophie, you said that that was us. Can you tell us about that? Oh yeah. Well, that was my freshman year. Um, I had joined Fossil Fuel Divest, and they were organizing Heat Week, which we are repeating this coming week. Um, and it's sort of like this week long event of speakers and rallies, and it culminated with a blockade of Massachusetts Hall at the end. And yeah, it was just coming from a, a long legacy of activism at Harvard that inspired that. And But we're still fighting. We didn't we d- didn't get a divestment win then. So we're still in progress on that. They're, they're trying to get Harvard to divest from fossil fuels, which they refuse to do. Nate, how do you see this this imperative of of climate justice comparing or contrasting with the time you've already described of the Vietnam War, where literally young men on Harvard's campus were trying to keep themselves and their their friends and colleagues out of a war they considered unjust. I mean, there was something very, very personally pressing. Climate change is huge, but it's, it's not quite the same as saying, I'm going to go be sent off to a war I don't support. Well, that's right, but but I think that the students of today really look at look at what's happening with with uh, climate change, and it's a huge issue for them. I mean, when when things get really bad, I'm not going to be here, but they will be, and their children will be. Um, so I fear for my grandchildren, who will be growing up in a world where pretty much right now nothing is being done to to fight climate change. So I think I think it is a big issue. It's not it's not the immediate issue of going to war, but it's a huge issue among young people these days. Sophia, how how do you see that issue? The 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 imperative that that you and your uh, fellow students have right at this moment to to take on climate change and climate justice compared to uh being in the midst of a of a war that was that was sending people off to fight. Yeah, I I think that there are some 
pretty important similarities in terms of the urgency that we feel, especially like as young people on this campus, about climate change. But it's different. It's it's not the same urgency. And I also wonder if the difference might be the impact it had on men on campus, because I feel like a lot of the activism taking place, especially that draws important connections between the fossil fuel divest movement, the prison industrial complex, the military industrial complex, all of these things are really spearheaded by women of color. A lot of the people doing work on these things are women. I wonder if if we had a stronger involvement of men, if that would help. Nate, do you have a thought on that? This is such an interesting idea. Well, I'm I'm actually encouraged that that women are taking the lead. In 1969, there was a lot of sexism in SDS. And in fact, this, a strike steering committee was elected that had no women on it, and it was pretty embarrassing. So then two two women got put on the strike steering committee. But you know, women were just as involved in opposing the war as men in in 69, even though they weren't going to go. So, you know, one but I I'm encouraged by the leadership that women are taking in this whole movement. Because I, th- I think they've, uh, I, I think they're doing a better job in many ways than we did. We, we destroyed SDS. We had factional fighting, which resulted in SDS splitting apart in the summer of '69, at a time when it had a hundred thousand members. It was huge. Wow. It was a very influential movement, and we screwed it up. And I don't think the students of today are going to do anything like that. And I'm encouraged by that. Nate, what do you think that student activists like Sophia and her peers can learn from the experiences you had 50 years ago? Um, I think they've learned a lot already. I think they've, in their cohesion, even though they have disagreements, to not let that destroy the movement like we did. The role of women and that women can provide great leadership, I think, is they've learned that. So, you know, I think they've learned, learned a lot and are in many ways smarter than we were. Nate Goldschlag is a former Harvard University student who participated in the 1969 protests, and Sophia Shapiro is a current Harvard student who's active in the divest Harvard movement. Thank you both so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Next is produced by Lily Tyson. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. We had help this week from Emily Quirk, Chris Albertine, and Emily Spector. Music featured on the show this week is by Todd Merrill, Goodnight Blue Moon, Muddy Ruckus, and Dave Richardson. You can find a playlist of New England musicians featured on our program at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and The Public's Radio.